Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. If you've been listening to the last few episodes sequentially, and especially the Thursday episodes, you may be seeing a little bit of a theme. A few weeks ago, I talked about first-party misuse. I answered several questions that came out of a webinar that I co-hosted with Uri Arad at Identic for the Merchant Rest Council. And there were so many questions that I just couldn't answer them all in the webinar, so I decided to answer them on the podcast. And then actually there were two more this past Thursday because there were so many, there were too many for one episode. And I also give kind of thorough answers. But <laughs> so then this past week, I ended up talking about chargebacks a little bit, the, my philosophy around chargebacks. I've been working on chargebacks for the last 16, 17 years of my life between payment processing and on the merchant side and then consulting with several very large companies on creating a different type of chargeback process and learning from it and benefiting from it. And so I provided some of the top three myths that I hear people say about chargebacks and then the three main questions that I suggest asking if you're looking at chargeback providers. Today is going to be kind of a continuation of those things. I am really excited to talk to my guest today, Dominic Squeo. At first, actually, we were talking about just doing an episode on iGaming and gambling because that is really where he has lived for the last several years. I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for a while, but when he was on the merchant side, he wasn't able to speak publicly. And I know a lot of you can relate to that. And it's understandable. Do I totally agree with it? And can I argue a different perspective that it actually makes your company look really good and all of that? Absolutely. But I understand comms teams and I'm not here to fight or change those rules. But now that Dom is a fraud and chargeback consultant for Eilers and Cryjack, which is a consultancy that focuses almost exclusively on working on behalf of iGaming and gambling companies, he's able to talk. And so next week, we're going to talk about iGaming and gambling. When the Visa rules announcements came out and I was just getting flooded with so many questions, especially about their solution for preventing first-party fraud chargebacks, I really, I asked, hey, would you mind coming for two episodes? Can we do a chargeback episode first and then iGaming and gambling? And he was so kind to say yes. <laughs> so, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about him and then I will explain why I thought that this was a really good topic to discuss right now. And I am hopeful that this will be an enlightening conversation for you all and that you'll really enjoy hearing what we have to say or hearing about our experiences, I should say. So Dominic actually started on the chargeback side of fraud, which I know can always provide a unique perspective on preventative fraud fighting because that's where I came from. So I'm a little biased there, but he'll explain how he first started. It's a really interesting story. He actually sought it out because it was something that sparked his interest at a previous job. And he was like, oh, that's a thing. That's a that's a job. And so kind of interesting. That's a little little more intentional than a lot of people that we have here, right? So that's good. He knew what he wanted. He's worked on chargebacks and or fraud for companies such as Expedia, Verify, Bwin, which then turned into BetMGM, and most recently was at DraftKings for three years. 
where he was promoted four times within three years and to end as their director of fraud investigations. So again, he knows so much about gaming and gambling that next week's going to be fun for that because there's so many nuances. And he shared with me just a little bit that there are so many solution providers that really want to get into that business. And I'm sure they do. But he said it's actually quite difficult. And so he's going to have a lot of tips for solution providers as well as for people who are thinking about fighting fraud in that vertical. He says it is a completely different ballgame. And I believe him, especially because they have regulations. And on the e-commerce side, we really don't. I mean, knock on wood, but then again, sometimes it would be a good thing. So I've known Dom for several years, and we're going to talk about the crazy commonalities we have. So today on the podcast, we'll, we'll talk about how he became interested in fraud and in his career path at a high level, how the first official role in fraud impacted the rest of his career. And specifically on this episode, we talk about chargeback strategies, how holistic chargeback management can have many unexpected benefits for the business, as well as providing rich fraud intelligence. So I feel like this is something I've been preaching for a really long time, but I feel like the rest of the industry is saying the only way you can prevent first party fraud is by paying for alerts or the only way that you can respond to chargebacks is or manage chargebacks at all is just respond and move on. And that's not my belief. That's not my philosophy. And interestingly enough, Dominic and I have a very similar philosophy and you'll hear (laughs) why that might be in a few minutes. But, you know, even more important, just how a company can benefit from first party fraud chargebacks. There's actually a lot of benefits for companies. And I don't say this as someone who has never done this before. And this is like a theory. I have done this for some of the biggest companies in the world. We'll talk about one of them today quite a bit, but I've done this for large marketplaces, for one of the top five quick service restaurants, for several other online companies, and I have seen it work. And my clients have been like really surprised. So this isn't me trying to sell my consulting services. I actually have a little bit of a waiting list now, which is kind of awesome. But so it's not that. It's just I want people to think about it differently, especially with the chargeback rule changes and what's being offered as solutions, et cetera. There's just just know that there's different ways. So there is one note <laughs> and this is kind of like where I I don't know, I had a little bit of regret yet after we finished our interview and I asked Dom, oh my gosh, I feel like I talked too much. And I said, please, please, please be honest with me. Was it bad? And he said, no. So we're going with it. But this was the first time that I've had a guest that worked on a team and a process that I created even a few years after I left the organization. So Dom started at Expedia working on the friendly fraud process or what they called the suspect fraud process that I created for them. He worked there a few years later. And he actually reached out to me years later when he was at Verify and told me about that coincidence. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so crazy. So that's how we've kept in touch over the years. And in hindsight, I may have gotten a little extra excited about that and even proud, which isn't a common feeling for me. But I was proud to hear the impact that my work on that process had on Dominic's career. Nobody told me, hey, build it this way or do this or do that. This was completely a hypothesis that I put into action. And Expedia saw the value that they created a team around it to sustain the process that I created. I That's an amazing feeling. And I know for any of you guys who have created a fraud team from scratch or had input on a product or a system or a process, that there's some pride there. And so it kind of came out a little bit as I heard him talking about the impact it had on him. So 
know, like I said, these are all concepts you've likely heard me share before, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who's talking about how beneficial it can be to have chargebacks provide value and influence on fraud prevention and customer experience too. This actually, my process has actually increased sales and decreased chargebacks by a lot. I wish I could publicly share numbers and company names because wow. And again, this isn't me saying like it's mine. I'm actually like give, we're giving you the steps in this. So it's not really proprietary. I mean, there's definitely some proprietary pieces I hold back for clients, but the overall concept is not proprietary. So I might have gotten a little extra excited that there's now someone else who can publicly say there's a better way than just responding to chargebacks and moving on or saying Writing off chargebacks is a cost to doing business and moving on. So separately from my fandom, Dom provides a lot of great perspectives in this episode that I really hope you enjoy learning from. I know this is a little bit of a longer intro than usual, but like I said, I kind of had to mea culpa a little bit just in case. And maybe you listen to this and you're like, I don't hear it. But just in case, I know at one point it kind of went on a monologue and I was like, Oh, oops. But it's just something I passionately care about. And so that can happen sometimes. I appreciate you all so much for all your feedback. I get so much great feedback, but legitimately, if you're like, wow, you go a little over the top on this one, like it's okay to say it. Or you can just know that I already think that and I'm going to try not to do that again. But with all of that, I'm going to stop talking so that you can listen to my really great conversation with Dom Squeal about chargebacks and his career path. And then next week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear all about his experience and some of the things he learned and things that he thinks are important for the industry to know about fraud prevention and risk management in iGaming and iGambling. But first, a word from our sponsor. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode.
All right. Today, I am so excited to have Dominic Squeal here. Dom, thank you so much for joining me on Fraudology. Thank you. It's been like a long time. I've been listening to the podcast and then to take an opportunity like this and really talk about my experiences and obviously some of the, you know, I guess the new wave of fraud is really something I would love to continue doing. So I'm glad to make this my first, we'll say, take on that. <laughs> Your first podcast debut. Yes. <laughs> and you were on the merchant side for a long time. And so especially at a lot of merchants that are growing quickly, they don't want people in fraud and, and security to talk publicly. So in a way, you're kind of you've exited witness to protection, so to speak. And yes. I had another guest who used to work at Apple like on a year or two ago. And she said the same thing. She was like, I feel like I just left witness protection and I can talk now. <laughs> so that's, there you go. That's, that's perfectly. That's exactly as described. So I want everyone listening to get to know you. So I always ask this question because I think, especially for our generation of fraud fighters, none of us had the same path to get here. So how did you get started in online fraud and chargebacks? What was your what was your career path to this <laughs> world? I, I, I will say it was a lot of a coincidence mainly, but I think it was kind of a time when I thought about what I wanted to do and I didn't really realize that. And I could do it or I, I would have been someone that, that that should he actually do it. And that's because fraud is always considered in some form like, oh, well, it could be like like investigators or like law enforcement or like working like internally in a company and just basically like reviewing and information to investigate. But what I actually realized is over time, I actually knew I could investigate and so that's what led to my, we'll say the start of my fraud career is that curiosity. And so, yeah, I would say before I joined a company to actually work in fraud, I was actually in customer service for four years. I also made my way into IT for about a year, which was a way for me to like try it out and see how it went. But, you know, at that point in time, I never had any fraud experience. I've never really went to school for like criminal justice or anything like that. And, and so I only recall like a time that I used to take calls, the job that I actually worked customer service. So I was taking calls all day, resolving issues and troubleshooting. But I will always get the occasional call that really was a fraud call. And so that's really what sparked my interest. And I was spending some time receiving calls from customers saying they were being called to basically being, they were being offered a special box, right? And, and I would always ask, like, what, who called you and, and why did they call you? And so Long and hold, I found out over time as I was getting these calls is that there was a scam going on and it was actually in operations out of the Caribbean and they were calling customers, offering them a promotion for a special cable box with, with a package for a very great deal. And they were being told that as part of that, you will offer, they would have to get a gift card. Mm. And so, you know, over time, I would get these calls. My colleague would get these calls. What we started doing, we started gathering that information and we started to take it down and started to obviously, we'll say, move it forward, move it off to management. And then eventually it turned into something bigger where corporate got involved. And then long behold, after we found out about what was really going on, which was this, this operation, this scam, it eventually went into the local news in New York. And so remembering that time and remembering taking calls like that, I always said, well, why not? actually do this for a living. And so I spent time looking at job postings and I saw this job for Expedia. It was a suspect fraud analyst, which was sparked my interest in 
and actually even trying for to, to even get into fraud. And I apply and luckily and, and gratefully, I, I was given a position at Expedia to join the dispute operations team. And so while the title was suspect fraud analyst, it was actually really a chargeback analyst. And I thought it was a cool title to give, but again, it was really to focus on chargebacks. But, you know, when I joined, I was one of their first external hires. The team was traditionally known to like hire, we'll say internals from the fraud team themselves, the actual team that would review live, live transactions, bookings that were actually taking place. And so I was brought in and they were kind of like, wow, like this person doesn't have any fraud experience. But over time, I obviously took my curiosity and I spent time working with the team and we really were like a great team. And that's when I realized that this was what I wanted to do for my career. And then seven years later, I had a lot of fun. It was rewarding. It's been rewarding. It continues to be rewarding. And, and I can't say enough that this is what I want to do for the rest of my, my life and say my career. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I also started on the customer service side and started to get risk calls and fraud calls and piqued my curiosity as well. And I know that there are a lot of people that started off there too. Do you want to share a little bit about where you went after Expedia quickly, just for context for the rest of our combo? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, I spent about a year at Expedia and at that time I was moving around. So I moved to Los Angeles. At that time I was in Seattle. So Expedia's headquarters is in Bellevue, well now in Seattle. Now it's in Seattle, yeah. In Seattle, yep, um, by the bay and went to LA. And so I joined a company, which is obviously now owned by Visa, which was Verify. And I spent about two years there. I actually started as a chartback recovery specialist, which was a role that pretty much comprised of the teams that basically manage merchant chargebacks. And so the cool thing about working in that role is I got to experience what it's like to actually dispute chargebacks mm. for different merchants and started to actually learn that not all merchants are the same, right. not all disputes are the same. <laughs> and, and that allowed me to really understand like what's really specific to one merchant could very well be specific to another merchant, but it might not always be the same. And so I spent time working, managed to say, disputes for various merchants. And then later on, I actually joined their client support group. And that part of the work was more of like actually managing the clients themselves, actually dealing with merchants on a daily basis with whatever needs that they have as part of the services that we offered at Verify. And so I spent about two years there. And during that time, I was working with some of the gaming clients with the company that was also part of Verify 1.0, which is CAMS. And so I sparked my interest in actually joining the gaming industry, which led me back to the East Coast for a few years. And I joined a company called BWIN.Party, which is now known as BetMGM. And from there, about a year and a half, I spent working as a payments and chargeback specialist. And then I also went into more of the payment side. So I was a payments manager there. And then later, we'll say later down the line, I joined a company that's obviously very well known, which is DraftKings. And I will say top down, bottom up, we'll call it. Started my way as a lead. And then eventually my latest, we'll say my most recent role was a director of fraud investigations. So as you can tell, fraud has been part of my life for, for so long. But yeah, that's that's pretty much where where landed. You've grown with fraud and chargebacks and fraud and chargebacks have grown with you. Like <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And you know what? As many times as I would love to say, I don't want to do this anymore. It always finds its way back to me. But oh, yeah. 
once you get the bug, I don't even know if I've shared this on the virus before, but like I took a, after the project we're about to talk about, I took a, like a short-term project for a healthcare company on their payment systems. And after about like three months, I was like, I miss e-commerce so bad. I had to finish it out like for nine months, but it was like, I need to go back. Like, this is insane. I, mm -mm, nope. I miss e-commerce and I miss fraud. Like I can do payments, but it's not as exciting for healthcare, especially. And I enjoy payments in e-com, but it's just, I realized, nope, this is my world. I need to stay here. So I get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly like that. And that's, again, I think always what e-commerce professionals experience is like some time in their career, they might move away from the actual work, which is fraud and, and chargebacks would say, specifically, I would say fraud more so, but mm -hmm. they move away and then they eventually find their way back. It's because it's really what they love to do. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. There's not a lot like it. Yeah. So this is kind of a fun coincidence, I think. So one thing that you and I have in common is not only our strong understanding of the chargeback process for e-commerce, which informs so much about fraud prevention and the end-to-end -end process, but we both worked for the same company at a different time on the same team and process. So you mentioned you were a suspect fraud analyst. I actually created that in this already, but I created that process. Expedia hired me in fall of 2010 to create really to help them deal with and create a process and really a department for managing chargebacks in a way that they could understand which of these fraud chargebacks should be going into our fraud system and which ones should be going to be disputed. Because as we all know, fraud reason codes are just kind of a catch-all for everything. And it has some big implications to your fraud system if you're putting everything that turns into a fraud chargeback into your fraud tool, or if you're not putting anything at all, because that's the fraud you're missing. And there was a very large issue that occurred that spurred them hiring me. And I was actually working on behalf of the chargeback company that they had, but they were the, the chargeback company was the one paying my bills, but in the fraud ops at Expedia, which was an, in Bellevue at the time, which was like an hour and a half commute for me from Alki Beach in Seattle, where we lived at the time. And so that was one reason why I decided not to stay past doing the project. But when you first reached out to me several years ago, I think you were at Verify at the time and you mentioned you'd worked at Expedia as suspect fraud. I knew exactly. I was like, oh my gosh, I created that process. Was it okay? Is it still working? <laughs> <laughs> so I, what did you learn while you were at Expedia, especially since you really hadn't done chargebacks before, but specifically working on friendly fraud chargebacks or first party fraud and look in that process. And then what were there any outcomes of this method that surprised you? I mean, it's interesting because that point in time, it was all new to me. So yeah. I, I was more of a spectator to probably what many things that you may have done to actually build out these processes. And just for record, I joined in January 2015, which at that time, about five years later, we'll say. It was I, about I would... four. Yeah, because I left in May of 2011. So, yeah, about like four years. So it'd been in operations for a while. Yeah, I'd be so for... curious to know if they used my original training manual or their own. But, you know, that's fine. Details. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say training was definitely more so like a hybrid of like, we'll say procedures, documents, but also on the job training. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I obviously didn't know much about chargebacks. And I think granted at the time, I was also like really trying to understand what really was part of the process that I was doing that was actually really investigating and, you know, we'll say less of what is really like the traditional, like dealing with a chargeback, how to respond to it, how to win a case. Mm -hmm and so forth. So I assumed a lot of this was like 
the norm, which is kind of where, you know, I landed with other merchants and I brought that what I thought was norm over to them to some degree in, in the practices that we had at Expedia. But what I think I will say is, you know, merchants tend to look at chargebacks as more of like, not a problem, like more of a cost of doing business. And so I really, merchants don't come to, we'll say, come to find out that chargebacks are a problem until it's too late. Or we'll mm-hmm. say like, it becomes something that can implicate their ability to even process at that point. But I would say during the time that I was at Expedia, I, I learned how much information can be gathered from a chart vac. At that point, when I was reviewing transactions that were disputed specifically as part of the process, that processes that we had, we would review all of the fraud coded disputes for all of the point of sales for Expedia. And so when we reviewed the transaction, we're really reviewing it basically at the point in time where it was actually, we'll say the transaction took place on this day and we're reviewing it about maybe even a month after the fact. And so we spent a lot of time doing a lot of reverse engineering. We'll say you're reviewing the transaction, you're going back in time to that point and even beyond that historically. And you're really trying to determine that this transaction is actually not fraudulent, which is kind of, again, the reverse of when you review an actual transaction as part of a manual review, you really try to determine if it's fraudulent versus not fraudulent. Whereas mm-hmm. a chartback analyst and part of these processes at Expedia, we were really trying to understand whether or not this transaction was not fraudulent. And so when I started reviewing these transactions, part of processes that we had were really to determine whether this transaction was truly fraudulent or it was friendly fraud, or even in some cases, at the time, we would always say buyer's remorse. Uh, right, for, right. For particular right. reasons, for instance. But, you know, what we learned over time is that when it came to actual friendly fraud, what is really a transaction that was legitimately done by a cardholder with the merchant, but then it was later disputed as fraud, meaning that the cardholder is claiming that this was fraudulent and not authorized, we started to understand that there were reasons that some of these transactions were actually disputed legitimately, or at least in the thought of the cardholder, they actually really thought it was fraud. And some reasons that we saw were like descriptors not matching up to the points of sale. And we would see that regularly. And, and we will also know that customer service reps, when they were dealing with customers on the phone, they were pushing their customers to the bank to dispute these transactions. And in some cases, too, we would also see that issuers were actually disputing transactions in bulk. And I will say an unattended consequence of that was actually disputing something that was actually done by the parlor and had no awareness that it was disputed and never made a claim to say that it was fraudulent. It was just a technicality, we would say. And so we would observe these trends. We would look at these trends and we would start to obviously decision them and provide that input. So that feedback loop, as I would call it, back to obviously our internal teams. We also would have these groups, these meetings, and we would talk about some of the trends that we're seeing specifically on the friendly fraud side. And that was our way to obviously find opportunities to mitigate the chargeback from even occurring by making changes or even improving some of the processes that other teams had, like customer service, for instance. So that part right there, that part of the process right there is what I think is really, we'll call it the most vital part of the process is really how do we inform the business of the chartbacks that are coming in and how can we always pivot from the information that we're getting from these disputes? And so I thought of it as like, this team is really the eyes and the ears of not only the team that's basically sitting beside us, which is the fraud team, 
but also the organization as a whole. But when I started to have also even review like actual disputes themselves, and we started to obviously see the outcomes that would take place, meaning cases were reviewed by us. We determined that they were not fraudulent and then they were sent out for basically representing. We will also start to see those outcomes. And when we saw cases that we lost, we would also then, this, you know, we would find out later on is that disputes were not being properly represented, meaning information that they were gathering, meaning the teams themselves that were actually submitting the rebuttals were actually not putting in the right information. So uh. we also created similar processes that were basically allow us to provide that feedback uh. to those teams to actually then tailor their responses accordingly. And then we also learned over time is that there are customers that we were seeing that continuously would chart back. And so because of what you mentioned earlier about the decisioning and actually, mm -hmm. you know, sending that information to basically say it and fraudulent, we had to find an opportunity to actually, we will say, categorize them as abuse versus mm -hmm. fraud, mm -hmm. which then helped us manage what I would call the repeat offenders. It's so fun for me to hear like, oh, that process continued to go after I built it. I mean, there really was nothing and I'm not like trying to my own horn or anything like that, but it was, I had been on the patent processing side. I had managed my own team for a small company. And then I go to this huge company just to work on one part. And I learned a lot from them in a lot of ways, a lot about scale and all of that. But my, I mean, really before I came in, the, the third party chargeback provider was deciding what was fraud and what wasn't fraud and they weren't trained on it. And so it was very arbitrary. And there were a lot of cases where they were mismarked either one way or another, right? In one case, very significant case. And I think I can say this now because it's been 11 years and I've heard somebody talk about this at a conference before and it wasn't me. So I think it's fine. But, you know, they had a very large fraud group that was never marked marked as fraud because the chargeback analyst that was handling it didn't think it looked like fraud. I mean, to him, I sat with him once, I had to fly out to where they were and sat with him once. And it was very interesting what he thought was fraud and not fraud. I was like, who trained you? Like, it was just very, you know, if this and this and that. And I'm like, that's not how fraud works. And so at first it was just, hey, we need you to come on and train the chargeback team on how to identify it. And I was like, that's not going to work. You need to have someone who understands fraud, who can really dive into these details. So I started taking sample sets and started to like, because they were hiring someone else to manage chargebacks, they didn't have any of that information about it. And I helped them see, look at how much business intelligence you can learn from if you have someone internally who starts noticing these patterns, right? Starts noticing, huh, all these people talked to this customer service rep and were promised a refund and they didn't get it. Or, oh, all of these people booked this hotel and they're having the same problem. Or, oh, look at this fraud ring that I found that you guys didn't on the front end but now it's confirmed fraud. I'm going to start marking everything that's linked and holy cow, it's like this big spider web. And I think it started to demonstrate to them the value that chargebacks shouldn't just be something that you just manage and have somebody else respond to. I mean, you can have someone else respond to it. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but you should be getting the intelligence out of it. Whether that means you work with a chargeback company that provides in-depth analytics on everything from the marketing campaign to everything. And you can start to see those patterns from a higher level, or you hire someone internally to just look at fraud chargebacks and go, huh, huh, okay. And I was able to also explain to the business that 
And at the time, I'm going to just generalize it because I won't say specific percentages, but at the time they weren't sure like what percentage was what. And the card brands had just changed the rules to no longer require a fraud affidavit. So obviously fraud coded chargebacks went way up because there was really no nothing else other than just click a box for the call center employee. So they it became the catch all. And I was able to say like, hey, actually, only this percentage is actually true fraud. Stop because they were marking it as this is fraud that we missed and people were getting deduced. It was going in their record like, oh, this became a chargeback. You missed it. No, actually, it wasn't fraud at all. I can prove that the cardholder made the transaction. To your point, it's like reverse engineering fraud review. Sometimes I would call customers like I did a lot of in-depth details before creating the process. Like, you know, sometimes I'd call the customer and play dumb. Like, hey, uh, how was your trip? Like, what did you, you know, and all that stuff and just got so much information that it then demonstrated to the business. Well, this is worth investing in. This is worth having a small team who works on this because then they can communicate out to the fraud team and all as close to real time as you can get with chargebacks. Like you said, sometimes it's 30, 60 days after, but they're on the floor going, Hey guys, this is a new fraud ringer. This is happening or that's happening or all of that. So I, it makes me proud to know that I am sure that they improved upon it. They had to, as rules changed, especially with compelling evidence after I left, I'm sure that was a big change. I was an analyst with the person who became your manager at the time. Like we were one desk away from each other. So it's a very small world. I don't even think you knew that I had worked there when you reached out to me at first. And I was like, that's my baby. I created that. But yeah, to me, chargebacks are always going to be an opportunity to learn more about your business. And I will be saying that till the day I die. I think it might even be on my tombstone, but you know, there's so much value there and you saw it too. And that's why I think our philosophies are so similar because you saw it in action, just like I had both at the startup I worked at before Expedia and then putting this in place for Expedia. And then I did something similar for one of the biggest marketplaces right after I left Expedia. So I've also seen it many times more since consulting. But yeah, I think a lot of people just count it as cost of doing business, like you said. And, you know, let's just respond to what we can and get what we can, but that's it. Now you're missing so much information to help you save more in the upfront. Also to me, that's the best way to reduce chargebacks. When chargebacks are high, I think it's the best to look at your root cause. Look at those patterns. What are the reason code patterns? What are the bins, right? To your point, is there an issuer that just went through and did something big or maybe they had a compromise on their end with their bins? There's there's can be so much data in there. You can learn, you know, about the descriptors or so many things that you can go back and fix. Or even if you start to see like behavior patterns of customers, you can maybe advocate for different language at checkout or things like that, that they're not going to impact conversion, but they are going to help you either prevent a chargeback because they're more informed or you have proof that you informed them of this piece of the terms and conditions on the checkout page and therefore you'll win the chargeback. Um, So either way. Yeah. So I love geeking out with people that kind of have similar philosophy because I just think too often to your point, like too many companies just see it as cost of doing business. We'll just dispute what we can, win what we can and move on with our lives. And there's way too much value in business intelligence and those things. Totally agree. (laughs) And we just totally went off on a monologue. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nerded out a little bit. But yeah, so you said you had mentioned that you assumed that every merchant had a similar process like that. Is that 
Have you found that to be true when working with other merchants or was that something that was kind of unique to Expedia? I would say it's very unique to Expedia at that point in time. I I hope and expect that over time, I think some of the philosophy, some of the best practices that I learned from Expedia, obviously, are inherited with other merchants that I've worked with. But yeah, I, I will say that it is very common to really see at the point in time when like for myself included, that some merchants really don't even like observe what their chargebacks are. And and they're all, I mean, they're only going to look at what affects the bottom line, which again, it creates a, a we'll say a lack of visibility. And, and also it really, from a fraud to it, it really also puts someone in a position that they might very well see a problem that, I mean, we'll, we'll say at that point, they're not seeing it. But over time, that problem starts to emerge. And again, that's why merchants usually will say, ring the alarms and start the process of actually trying to find a way to right. bring the chart next back. <laughs> right. Yeah. When their ratio gets up to that 0.9% for Visa or 1% for exactly. MasterCard, then they're like, oh no, we have to do something quick to get it down. And to yeah. me, I've always felt like, no, could you understand it, why they're coming in? You can reduce them in the upfront over time. And then you just have less to deal with. And then you also implement a better, to your point, response strategy. You can provide more information when you understand the chargebacks as to how to respond to those chargebacks. And so that way you have less chargebacks coming in, but of the ones that you do have come in, because you always should, I mean, there was one merchant, this is a side note, but a merchant sent me a little video that a vendor put out of a merchant saying that they were, that they had zero chargebacks thanks to this vendor. And they weren't, chargeback guarantee company. So it's not like they were saying, oh, they take care of our chargeback costs. They were saying they had zero chargebacks. And the merchant was like, is this really a good thing? Because I feel like the merchant that sent it to me was like, I wouldn't brag about that because that probably means that you're canceling too many orders up front. So they're always going to be a cost of doing business, but at least when you get them, that you have strong, strong likelihood of getting that back. Right. Yeah. And we kind of talked a little bit about this, that you know, you and I have like found ways to reduce losses by millions and increase recovery by similar numbers just by understanding the process and learning what we can about the patterns that are provided by those chargebacks, whether they're fraud or, or non-fraud, right? If they're fraud, you're putting them into your rules engine or your machine learning to train it to say, hey, this is the fraud we didn't catch. So we need to be looking for these types of behaviors and information, data points, et cetera, and strategically responding to it. I'm curious what your experience has been in utilizing root cause analytics to future chargebacks. Like, is there a specific example of a time where you were like, oh, I see this, this is a something that we can put in the upfront and just through learning the details? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really unique because obviously I'll speak for, from my experience. I think for many others, it might be a lot different. Yeah. And I think at any point in time, like obviously for myself included, we always need to understand like where, where we're starting, right? What, what, what are we, what are we starting with to actually get to the point of like cost analysis and the root cause of fraud indirectly also the root cause of some chargebacks and not all chargebacks. And so what I always said was taking the first, we'll say glance, actually conducting some form of like historical look back and then taking that data to really create that benchmark, but then understanding the business model, how this, this merchant offers their services or their products really to develop that, we'll call it that uniqueness and that strategy to really start to define what are typical reasons and what are reasons that are unique to that business to then start to formulate or, and then actually better yet, start to see trends. And so 
you develop these trends over time. And one, there was one unique trend that we would find over time. And this was, yeah, one of the merchants I worked with is that we noticed, and it was very clear that there was one issuer that continuously rejected our rebuttals. When we submitted a, we'll call it a very well-rounded case with all of the information with very, very strong, compelling evidence, we would always notice that this issuer was always keen to always deny our cases. And so what we started to do with obviously from the analysis and actually understanding the cost is that we started to actually tailor our dispute to that bank differently than what we would commonly use as part of our workflows. And so as a result of that, we, we learned at that point in time is sometimes an issuer in this case, and this is that one example, they may not understand or even know like what this cardholder is disputing and as to why. And so what we learned is that we can educate the issuer, in this case, whoever is actually working that case on their side to actually understand this is what we offer. This is our service. This is how it works. This is how this person conducted a transaction on our website. And these are the reasons why we know for a fact that this is not fraudulent. And here's all of the details. And what we would do is we would actually outline it to the guidelines of what the networks themselves would actually tell us. And so we knew right there and then is that at that point in time, initiatives reviewing that, that rebuttal, we'll call it that package. They're able to then really understand what the transaction is, why it's not fraudulent, and able to go, go back to their card holder and actually, hopefully at that point, have that explanation or, or send that notice to let them know that the case is denied. And so mm. that particular level of data from cause analysis, and this is really issuer-based, so meaning we had to understand bin data to be able to then determine like this bin is not really performing well with our templates. And so that's really, I think the key to all of this is really developing those strategies and really getting to the point where you're actually capturing the data in a, we'll say in a very, very simple way, but in a very, very specific way, which will help make those decisions over time as merchants start to grow, actually start to make their strategies a little bit more effective, but also manage your costs as well. It's that feedback loop, right? Like if all you're doing is just preventing fraud and you're not looking at what you missed as well as what your customers are trying to tell you by calling their bank to get their money back, like you're missing that piece and you can't do a lot of improvement without it. To your point, I one of the tips that I give companies when I do chargeback training or I work with them on their overall chargeback process or whatever it is, is don't assume that the person reading the chargeback documentation has any idea what your company does. Even if you are the biggest brand and some of them are like in the world or in the US, especially or like in Europe or whatever, you don't know where in the world the person is that's reviewing the chargeback for your processor as well as for the issuer. You have, I mean, there were a lot of cases where the chargeback analysts that I worked with at payment processors and that I knew at issuing banks had never even flown on an airplane before. So they wouldn't know the difference between a gate agent and a ticket agent when you're responding to a chargeback about flights, right? Like they wouldn't understand what the confirmation, they just wouldn't understand because they'd never done it before. So super important to explain in your documentation what your company provides, any of like the nuances and what was purchased or ordered. 
that's like first thing I do in my templates is like, we are a company that provides X and sometimes it'll be like, you sign up for one month and then you're, it's a subscription service or whatever that nuance is specific to the service. And then in this case, this chargeback is for the purchase of X and this is what they received and this is how I know they received, et cetera, right? And then you go on to respond to the specific chargeback rather than just having the same template for everyone, which is something that another, another thing I say, and actually last Thursday, I, I provided an overview of what I talked about at NRF Protect last week about chargebacks. So if anyone wants to know like the top three chargeback myths or the top three questions to ask a prospective chargeback vendor, you can go back and listen to Thursdays. And so what advice or examples would you provide a merchant that has been told that the only way to manage chargebacks, and I guess you kind of answered this already, but is to dispute all chargebacks that come in and see which one sticks. This is also one of my top three myths, but I sometimes like, I feel like I, I'm the mom and maybe people tune my voice out, but if they hear someone else say the same thing as I do, maybe it'll sink in a little bit. So <laughs> put me on the spot, Dom. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. I mean, I, I would say it's like, you wish you could just throw a bunch of darts and just hope it works. And it's kind of like at the point in time, like you can put in all the work in the world to like fight every charter back. But ultimately, it's going to add, we'll say, they, we'll say diminish your returns, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think merchants, they forget. It's once you get a chart back, you already know that you have it. We'll say in this case, the loss is there. You're already getting charged a feed for whatever processor that you're doing business with. They're already, we'll say, adding a transaction, I'm say a feed per transaction on each of these, these disputes. And so the next step is really the merchant is now having to either lean on in-house resources, some of which these resources are shared or even have a dedicated team that actually submits these rebuttals, we'll say actually performs a review and represents these cases or then hire that, we'll say then a outsource or that managed services team to actually do it for you. And so once you start to realize that you're actually paying additional costs mm-hmm. to actually fight each dispute, you really start to then, you're really trying to understand whether the cost actually pipe down is actually worth even even the actual paper it's on, right? Mm-hmm. We'll say. And so I'm really like in my case, obviously it's a little different for me, but if merch is really trying to like fight every dispute to hope it sticks, it really does not, we'll say it's not effective first off. And secondly, it will prove to be costly later down the line, which I think also from my experience, like if if I was actually, we'll say the issue like I see a merchant sending me the same, same response mm-hmm. over and over again for every single cardholder. And at your processor is- level too, right? Because they're your first audience. Yes. They see the same response for every single transaction and they can't tell, is this really fraud or is this not? Like their eyes glaze over essentially, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, from, from my perspective, we've always saw it from, from the merchant side, right? Like I could imagine like when they issue, you know, like in this case, the teams that review these, these chargebacks, they themselves might say, this merchant is actually sending me the same exact thing over and over again. Like, I think we should just start to like deny these cases. And that's really, mm-hmm. again, we also don't want to like, like encourage issues to then, you know, we'll say overlook us. And so you want to send the best information for the right disputes and for the disputes that actually have a, we'll say, viable chance of you know, to your point, most payment processors assess chargeback fees. And if you are responding to chargebacks that will inevitably be lost, so to speak, and not come back with a return, you're going to get a second time chargeback. 
So you're actually going to lose more money for responding to that chargeback in addition to your internal resources and all of that than if you just would have said, okay, this is for sure fraud. And that was one of the reasons why I implemented that review process at the time of looking at all fraud chargebacks when they came in and kind of having a fork in the road for, okay, this is the process for hostile fraud and this is the process for friendly fraud because the hostile fraud should not be responded to. I mean, let's think about it. Worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, you provide really good information or the issuer is like, oh, okay, fine. It's friendly fraud, whatever. They credit back the merchant and the cardholder. Now the cardholder can say, my card was stolen. It was used at this website and they took my money. And that doesn't happen very often because usually it's the other way around where they default to assuming everything's fraud, but, and default to always, not always, but often, you know, refund the consumer, but that's one bad use case. You never want that. That would be a horrible tweet. But the other use case in so much of just backing up what you said is that absolutely payment processors and issuers, their eyes will glaze over if they don't know what to pay attention to. If they know that for the most part, the only chargebacks you respond to are the ones that really should be responded to, they pay so much more attention. I mean, using Expedia as an example, that really increased their win rate when you looked at the ratio, right? We're not looking right. at total number of chargebacks that came in plus what was one. We're looking at total number of chargebacks we disputed and how many were won. That ratio went up significantly when they stopped fighting those ones that were hostile fraud. And that I've seen that happen with so many different merchants. And I think that's just something, a best practice that needs to happen is you review your chargebacks. Is it true fraud? Is it friendly fraud? If it's true fraud, you put it in your system and you move on because otherwise you're just mucking up the system. You're really annoying your payment processor and issuers. They don't know how to look for which one or what the difference is. And you're acquiring more second time chargeback fees. So of course, not surprisingly, I agree with you. (laughs) I I guess I have one one last thing. It's always going to be a time where like you have enough staff, you have enough resources that fight a rescue, right? Mm-hmm. Over time, if you continuously use that, let's say, that approach, the teams are not going to be able to actually, let's say, overcome the actual, let's say, volume. And so at that point in time, then it really becomes a chase. And so what happens is, is a lot of cases end up, deadlines get missed. And so those valuable chargebacks that could have been fought mm-hmm. and possibly won at that point get lost in the shuffle, we'll say. So I think it's also, again... There's a lot of, we'll say, downward, you know, impacts to mm-hmm. fighting all chargebacks, but then there's also impacts to not fighting the middle. So I think there, there has to be a middle to everything. 100%. And when the Visa Online Resolution came into play, I want to say that was like 2017, maybe, when they started to implement the fees or the fines if you didn't respond to a chargeback. So actually, I should have clarified, if it's fraud, you put it in your fraud system and you accept the chargeback because to your, at least for Visa, and I think MasterCard similar now, where they want it summed up quicker. It used to be, well, if the merchant doesn't respond within 21 days, then we will officially give that credit to the customer or not take out the provisionary credit that we gave them. But now they've incentivized merchants to, if you don't, and I can't remember exactly what the timeframes are, but like if you don't accept a chargeback or respond to it within a certain number of days, then it's a cost per. And it it adds up really quickly. I was working with a really big quick service restaurant when that year that came out, 
And I did the math really fast and they weren't really doing anything for Well, they had been using a third party for chargebacks, but it actually ended up when they did the math cost them a lot more money than they actually got back for various reasons. And so I ended up doing everything end to end for them, but that's like a whole long story. But I did the math and I was like, you guys, like while we're creating this process, I really believe you should just hire a temp just to keep accepting every single chargeback because you're going to save so much money. I think if you didn't respond at all, it was eventually going to be like 75 cents per or something like that. And that was going to add up so fast for that company because they had like legitimately hundreds of thousands of chargebacks a month. And so I was like, at least then like, say you have hundred thousand chargebacks at 75 cents. And that's like, what, $75,000 a month. So that's way cheap. That's way more expensive than a hiring a temp. So I was going to ask about alerts and all of that, but I think actually I just want to skip over it for time's sake. Unfortunately, behind the scenes, I have a little bit of a hard stop and I probably talked too much on this episode and a little bit before you recorded. I'm sure that's not surprising, but I do know that you and I have very similar thoughts on them that they can be used strategically, but they're not always good for every merchant. It really has to be considered. Yeah. And I think also, again, like this part of every strategy, like, It's a mix of like, again, having an in-house team or having a dedicated team or or having a, we'll say, an outsource that can serve in some capacity, but then solutions. And I call them solutions more than like chargeback prevention because they Mm. help solve for some of these problems and they help solve for other problems too. And so, yeah, when it comes to like- But they also have a cost associated, right? So it's like, if you're all your chargebacks are 20 bucks, it's probably not worth it to have alerts. Right. Or right. or pre dispute or on the flip side, if you're low profit margin, high risk, if you're like a marketplace or something like that, where you just take a couple dollars off the sale. But if a chargeback comes at 100 percent, like that can be the deflection cost of a pre dispute can be astronomical and, yeah. you know, negative profit. So I think what both of us would say is just be strategic about it. Right. Look exactly. Weigh out the cost. and. Also, I think it's great, especially like if I have a client that, and this has happened a couple of times where they call me when they're in like month four of the BSIM monitoring program or the MasterCard monitoring program for chargebacks, I will absolutely enroll them in alerts just to get that down quickly. But then I also do root cause analysis and look at all of that. And that's more of sustainable and you don't have to pay those fees all the time. I like that you separate that out as a solution. Versus like an internal remedy or, you know, a right. process. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think they're good in some circumstances. I don't necessarily think that they need to be relied on all the time unless it's like a high risk merchant or something like that, because you're either refunding the for post dispute. It's you're just the only action you can do is refund it before the chargeback comes in for pre dispute. If that doesn't turn into a chargeback, usually the pricing is around 30% of what the transaction value was. So just weighing those options, they're resources we haven't had before or haven't had for the longest time and probably been around like five, six, seven years. I mean, post-dispute alerts have been around for a while longer, but, but yeah, like with everything, it shouldn't just be applied to every situation. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to what we talked about, like having the the analytics, having business intelligence, like day zero for like a merchant, let's say it's at that point in time that that merchant has, we'll say these chargebacks. And these are the reasons why they have what what may solve for those problems then trends. And obviously things change over time, new products get launched and so forth. Six months later, the needs may change. And then again, solutions may come in. They can serve really well. And then later on, 
they might not be needed anymore. And so I think it's, again, it's always going to be a constant versus like, this is what we need to do. And this will always be the mm. case for half, right. which again, it's not, not the case. Such a good point. Like it, it might change all the time. Right. Yeah. And that's like totally fine. So I'd love to know how you took your previous experience in chargeback at Expedia, learning that and then going on to verify and doing all that, how you applied it to your most recent roles at other merchants, especially in gaming, actually to my audience, Dominic's going to stick around. We're going to record another session for next week. And he's really going to talk a lot about the complexities and nuances of iGaming fraud, which I know so many of you guys really want to understand. And I do too. So, but because he went to two different iGaming companies after Expedia, that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? So, you know, did understanding the chargeback process so thoroughly help you make more strategic decisions for the pre-transaction fraud prevention methods and tools or, or how did that experience really impact your roles within iGaming? I guess to, to, to say, I think when I came into obviously an merchant, in this case, like gaming merchant, you know, the needs were a lot different, but a lot of the best practices, you know, and I would even say best practices. I think there's a lot of foundation around mm-hmm. what, you know, was, was being done, we'll say, at Expedia. And I think at the point in time, I think that foundation applies for pretty much every merchant. It's really starting the groundwork, getting mm-hmm. the right data, getting the right information, and really starting to analyze what is the particular, again, root causes that will cause a chart back. And so I, I would say that primary was something I, I relatively used across my experience in the gaming space. But more importantly, I think over time, what we realize is that certain types of, we'll call it bids, right? Certain types of cards were more susceptible mm-hmm. to chargebacks. So we obviously would implement, we we'll say rules in a case like this. And I will probably want to speak more about that in, in our next episode. Yeah. But understanding like the propensity to for someone to charge back in this case for friendly fraud cases, which is also unique, we'll say unique to the gaming industry is probably hmm. going to be more so managing the risk of the customer at the point in time when they're transacting. But better yet, when it came to true fraud, really understanding what are the causes of the fraud themselves. So getting to, to the point where we actually perform gap analysis. So we said, okay, we're seeing fraud in this particular, we'll say state, in this case, hmm. for gaming. But for merchants, it's like, we've seen this particular fraud. What are the fraud trends? Like, what is the, the, the MO? Like, what? is pretty much the pattern to which that fraud is occurring. And how do we then, we'll say, go back and create that feedback loop to the teams actually, we'll say, create the actual rules or actually the systems themselves, like the vendors actually manage fraud for a merchant. That's really where the value comes in. But I would say it's always going to be relative to the type of industry that you're in. And I think that practice that, that we talked about earlier is really going to be the foundation for every merchant that I can think of. So I, I mean, if I probably went so another, let's say, industry altogether, I think that same best practice would, would apply. A hundred percent. So after I did, you know, that at the startup and then at Expedia and then for the marketplace, I realized, you know, those three companies are very different, but the process still worked the same. And that was actually why I even named my company Chargelytics. I mean, it's a, such a longer story, but at one point I wanted, the plan was to have Chargelytics be a chargeback 
management company and that didn't work out. So then I was like, I have all these systems and processes and templates. I can be a consultant on it. And I've worked with so many different companies on that. And really where I start is, and even if they don't even hire me for chargebacks, right? They hire me just for fraud. I always go to their chargebacks first. I always look at what are the top three reason codes. Okay, let's dive in. What are the top use cases or scenarios within those reason codes? And that doesn't mean diving into the details of every single chargeback. You can take a sample set, but it really helps you understand very quickly what people are saying about the company in a way that usually you don't get that feedback loop. So I'm with you. It's definitely to me, like that's the only way to do it. But I know that that that's my, to me, that's the only way, but that's obviously not. And that doesn't mean it's the right way. It's just, that's how my brain works. Yeah, no, no. I mean, there's always going to be no, like I would say no right or wrong, but I think to say the least, I think it's always going to be a important aspect that every merchant is really gathering that data. And, and I think also like as businesses start to grow and scale, that data also needs to be always refined to really mm-hmm. represent the merchant at that point in time. Because mm-hmm. again, everything changes and things happen and services change. And so it could always be a never changing thing. So you have to really continue to refine that. I'm really glad you said that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's definitely not set it and forget it. Just like fraud shouldn't be set it and forget it, right? Because for right. a lot of times with chargebacks, especially especially on the fraud side, right? For true fraud chargebacks, you'll find, okay, they're getting in this way because this is obviously missed fraud. And then you put a rule in place or train your model to catch that. Now they're going to try to find another workaround, right? So exactly. it's never like, oh, okay, I did a sample set of the data for March. So now we're good for a year. Like, no, you should probably have a process where you're always pulling the analytics and have really in-depth reporting. That is critical these days, especially for scale, because you really can't. It's not necessarily sustainable to have someone look at every single fraud chargeback for some companies, though. Expedia obviously identified that this was a huge money opportunity and it was very worth it to hire more people. I kind of joked with you, I think when you like when we realized this connection, I was like, so how many people did they hire? Because I was the only one doing this. (laughs) but i mean i'm glad that they had a team that's the way it should be but they obviously saw the benefit in the roi so that's why we're talking about this i almost feel like i don't know we're evangelizing chargeback best practices but you know i'm nerdy like that (laughs) (laughs) i actually talked to a prospective merchant actually earlier today that was like i told my team that you're the chargeback geek and i was like I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> right? And it kind of became a joke for a while. Like, oh, Carice's favorite subject is chargebacks. I'm like, yep. And because I see the value in them. I've seen the value. And so it's almost like once you see that, you can't unsee it. Obviously, we could talk a lot more about this. I would. I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about the updates with Visa, but I'm actually like still trying to get some details and answers and stuff. So I figure I'll just wait and talk about that another time. But I'm really glad that you came on to talk about chargebacks because this is a topic that a lot of merchants ask about. And I can talk about it by myself all day long, but it's really nice to talk about it with somebody else that gets it and that he doesn't enjoy them, but understands the value that they can add to a business. And I think that that informs the upfront fraud decisions as well and G and risk stack and all that. And I'm very excited that you're going to come back so that we can talk or I can really learn more about just some of the nuances in iGaming.
you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.